Today's episode of the Deseret News Silicon Slopes Hour is brought to you by Start Studio. Start Studio is a custom software development firm that helps startups and entrepreneurs get off to a great start. To learn more, visit startstudio.com. And now, let's radio. Women were left for decades without the governmental support and without the business support for the policies that really are needed in order to allow women to support their families. Welcome to the Deseret News Silicon Slopes Hour on KSL News Radio. My name is Clint Betts. On today's show, I sit down with Seneca Council founder Nylan McBain to talk about what's become a hot topic in Utah over the past couple of weeks, equal pay for women. McBain is a veteran of corporate America with experience in digital marketing and brand strategy at the largest of companies, including Walmart.com and some of the smallest. Nyland started her career in Silicon Valley during the first dot-com boom, taking in the energy and optimism of that time while also witnessing the overextension and downfall of her first employers. In addition to her experience in-house, she spent five years at a digital advertising agency building campaigns for cause-oriented clients such as Huntsman Cancer Institute and the United Nations Foundation. She most recently was the chief marketing officer of Brain Chase, an educational technology company that motivates kids to do online academic work in the summer and after school by disguising it as a massive global treasure hunt. A graduate of Yale University and a New York City native, Nyland has experienced a range of flexible work situations and benefits while raising her three daughters. Here's my conversation with Nyland McBain. Nyland, thank you so much for coming on today's show. For those who don't know, I actually got stuck in a snowstorm. And so I'm at, you're in the studio, I'm not. So thank you for braving the weather, unlike myself, who was not brave. And I'm uh, just calling you. So, so thanks for coming on. really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of talk about equal pay in Utah this past week. Uh, there was a bill before the state legislature, and last week a vice chair of the Wasatch County Republican Party resigned after he published an op-ed that seemed to argue that women should be paid less than men, which is quite the position to have in 2017. <laughs> yes. In the op-ed he wrote, if businesses are forced to pay women the same as male earnings, that means they will have to reduce the pay for men they employ. Simple, epino- simple economics is what he says. Is it simple economics? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. In fact, the economics uh, that he's uh, looking at kind of defy the, the reality, uh, which is that most women in Utah, of course, work, and most mothers in Utah actually work. We do have the lowest rate of um, two-income married households uh, of any state in the nation, which is, of course, you know, part of what makes Utah's culture so, so unique and so special. But on the other hand, we do have half of um, our our married uh, parents who are both working outside of the home. And any any assumption that that ignores half of these working uh, parent two parent families is just uh, not only 
sort of inconsiderate and cruel to them, but just not really based in reality. Every, you know, lo- many other places in the country have started to embrace this idea that making sure that both men and women have the opportunity to flourish in the workplace while still raising the next generation of workers is really the only way that we can continue to grow the economic success of our local and our national communities. And we have really yet to fully embrace that philosophy here in Utah. And and I'm hoping that we can start... uh, um, getting closer to really taking care of both the mothers and the fathers that we have working here in the community in Utah by paying them what they are worth, both men and women, and understanding that for most women, work is not a choice. We have this fantasy that the women who are in the workforce are choosing that and that they, if they just wanted it enough, they would be home. And in some cases, that's true in most cases, that's not. And in many other cases, such as my own case, women are choosing to work, but it's an issue perhaps of less of financial need than it is of emotional and mental stability. And all of those factors are just being ignored when we call it simple economics um, in, in such a derisive, derisive way as um, Mr. Green did last week. According to a study by the National Women's Law Center, Utah women actually earn 71.1 cents for every dollar made by their male counterparts, which I believe ranks 48th out of 50 states. Yep. Why do you think the Beehive State struggles so much when it comes to equal pay? Well, equal pay is sometimes uh, understood correctly to be an active um, discrimination of women in uh, rewarding them for the same job, the same time that they've spent in the same job with the same qualifications. So, for instance, if you have a lawyer in Provo who's a woman, uh, she very well may be paid less than a lawyer at the same firm in Provo. Um, However, that usually isn't intentional, um, and those kinds of discrepancies simply need to, I think... Uh, need to be analyzed and visited and hopefully uh, with with goodwill rectified. However, there are a lot of other uh, reasons why a statistic like the one you cited is 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 the reality. One of one of the reasons is because Utah actually has the lowest rate of professional women of any state in the country. So specifically, um, women do not occupy the the highly paid positions uh, in our state. In fact, they occupy the lowest paid positions in our state. So specifically, 40% of Utah women work in only two occupational groups. The first is office and administrative support, and the second is service occupations. And both of those job groups have median wages that are well below the state average, whereas uh, the the job sectors that have the fewest women in them, such as engineering, construction, architecture, are significantly paid above the state average. So we have the most women in the occupationally segregated jobs. And and for me, I think a, some of this is because of choice. Some of this is because women are finding more flexibility in those positions. They're finding it easier to have part-time jobs in those positions, jobs that allow them to be uh, with children and to meet the needs of their families. 
But I also think that it does speak to a culture here in Utah that doesn't necessarily um, foster and promote the idea of women having a rewarding and fulfilling career path that they are planning over the course of their whole lives and that they're preparing for and working towards over decades. And so I think, unfortunately, what's happening is that some of our women who find themselves needing to or wanting to work also find themselves unsupported and unprepared to actually delve into an emotionally fulfilling um, long-term career. There's a reticence about saying, you know, even if my children have left the home, I'm going to go back to school so that I can spend the next 20 years building a career. That's not something that um, is done as often, I think, here in Utah as it is as it is elsewhere. And that's something that I think I personally would really love to work on changing because we have such an incredibly talented female workforce here that is ready to contribute and is interested in using their skills um, to to build our communities and to be rewarded financially for their skills and their worth, and so I think that that part of our part of our job pay discrepancy, our wage discrepancy, does come from a culture that hasn't really supported young younger women and uh, women who may be approaching an empty nest period of their lives to to get get their hands dirty and really get in there and really develop something for themselves that takes full advantage of their their skill set, their education, and their willingness to have a career path that's really their own. You alluded to this, but I kind of want to delve into the education piece of all this, which is, I, I, I saw some statistic, and I remember at UVU, like, uh, there were so many women, you know, freshman and sophomore year, but they would usually drop out by junior year. Is that kind of the reason why we're getting this professional gap and the reason why women aren't getting because they're not finishing uh, at the university level? What's happening at the university level uh, when they get into college? Because it seemed like they were getting into college at the same rate or close to the same rate as men. Yes. But they weren't graduating. Yes, exactly. UVU has done some tremendous work on this, but you're absolutely right, Clint. Utah actually has the lowest rate of women graduating from college. And and that's not because they're not starting. They are starting. As you said, we have a we have a, a, a dropout rate of, of women that is, is one of the most egregious in the country. And I don't know enough to know that it whether that is a direct corollary to then this this low paid workforce and this this service um, occupational workforce. Um, it very well may be, of course, because going back to school once you've had children, it, you know there, that. <laughs> That is that is such a heroic thing to do, and I'm not sure that we have established a culture yet here in Utah where we have said, listen, our women have children young, we have large families, but then part of that trajectory, part of the expert expectation is then, okay, then those women are going to go back and they're going to spend the next 20 years building um, – you know, an, an, an educational foundation and a career base for themselves. That That's just not part of our narrative yet. And um, I, as I said in the beginning, I do think that Utah is wonderfully unique in the focus that we do put on our families and the, and our, our, our women are having children young, but we have forgotten the second half of that equation, which means that they're also young when they're they have more time to themselves. And with tra- tra- career trajectories today being so flexible and requiring constant innovation and requiring um, technological support that that um, 
that, you know, really needs to be to needs workers to stay up on the latest developments, it's really important for that narrative, our narrative for our women here in Utah, to include that second part, to say, okay, maybe you didn't finish your education when you were 19, 20, 21 years old. Maybe you started having children um, in your in your 20s. But you now that you're in your 40s or your 50s and your children are more self-sufficient, go back to school. You know, I don't, I don't know that there are a lot of programs. I know UVU has focused on it, but I don't know that other schools in the country, in the state... Um, have concerted programs where they're recruiting some of these more middle-aged women to return and gain that confidence that comes from graduating from college and then discovering something that you want to spend the next 20 years uh, pursuing for yourself and for your community. I, I would love to be wrong on that, and, and I would love it if some of your listeners introduced me some to some other programs here in the state. Uh, but, you know, the, the, idea, the idea of returnships is becoming more and more popular uh, across the nation as a whole, and there have been some um, some successful programs, specifically in financial services industries, that you know not necessarily focusing on on the education or helping women get their their um, college degrees, but after they've had a break or a pause in their careers, they're helping them ramp back into a demanding um, job position through paid or unpaid internships or training periods in which the financial services company can evaluate these women, and they usually end up hiring about eighty percent of the women. That have gone through those internships. Um, the the only drawback is that those internships tend to be very small. You know, just a couple dozen women at a time. Um, but I do think that Utah is in a unique position to really take the lead on that kind of discussion uh, because we do have this this what I think is a vastly untapped resource that is anxious and willing um, to to educate themselves and to invest in themselves and their communities um, after after families are demanding less time. Well, one of the issues here is, you know, most families in Utah or a lot of families in Utah can't get by with just one income, right? Nope. So even though, you know, the husband, you know, is working or whatever, uh, it seems like there's kind of this fallacy that the woman, like, can, like you were saying before, can stay at home, right, Mm -hmm. and can make that choice. But actually, you know, most families, it seems, need that, need both you know, parents or uh, both spouses to be working. Is that right? That is that is absolutely right. Um, and in fact, um, as I mentioned earlier, our our rate of two parent households uh, both working is very low. However, um, the rate of Utah mothers, just generally married and single mothers, is not that much lower than the national average. In fact, 73% of Utah mothers whose children are between the ages of 6 and six, 17 work. And that statistic is at 77% nationally. So we're only four points behind the national average in terms of mothers who are working. Um, so again, you know, in that statistic is a, is a legion of women who are not um able to make the choice to stay home or not and um this is this is a reality you know which which utah leaders need to come to terms with we 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 pride ourselves on a lower cost of living than on the coasts and having lived on the coasts my entire life and coming here it's very real and wonderful that um our cost of living is lower however it's we still have um that need here in Utah to support our our families um, with 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 by by having women women work. It is not 
Um, it is not a choice here in Utah either. That said, um, you know, there are elements of the modern workplace that really break down this idea that um, a breadwinner is outside of the home and a primary caregiver is in the home. And for instance, you know, the rise of the of the gig economy or essentially the rise of freelancers and contractors and the ability for people to work for themselves and be attached to larger organizations at will, there's a prediction that by 2020, 40% of the American workforce will be part of this gig economy or will essentially be independent contractors and will be responsible for being essentially the the entrepreneurs of their own careers, the innovators of their own careers. And the rise of workplace flexibility, too, also breaks down this paradigm of, you know, breadwinners outside the home and nurturers inside the home. Um, workplace flexibility and the rise of technology are, are factors which we have to, when we should be in, here in Utah, embracing in, enthusiastically because it's these kinds of factors that are going to, going to allow both men and women to innovatively support their families and also be the caregivers for their children and their communities that, that we need. And to, to continue to just look at this bifurcation of inside the home and outside the home is, I think, extremely short-sighted and is not going to do anybody any good. Going back to the equal pay thing, Utah is one of only six states that doesn't currently have an equal pay law. Do you think passing an equal pay law would help solve this problem? Well, so so the discussion of whether the government uh, should step in and create policies to um, enforce sort of moral rights is actually something that... Um, that Mr. Green touched on in his editorial last week that you that you opened with, um, his, his right. argument was, of course, that that um, businesses and free market forces should be allowed to um, determine the pay for their workers, and and this this is actually an argument that has shaped the workforce and um, family lives of Americans for decades. And it's a it's a discussion that's that's has no conclusions of yet, but it's certainly been um, debated and forced over the past several decades. Specifically, I'm thinking of um, the in 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 1971, the Comprehensive Child Development Act was on the table um, uh, of of our of our federal government discussions, as, and it was essentially an act that was designed to continue the daycare system that was introduced during World War II when so many women uh, went to work uh, when, our, when men were overseas fighting in the war. And at that time, we did have a national daycare system, and it was very successful. And this act in, in the early 70s was designed to sort of reproduce that um, in, 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 a, in a federally uh, funded and you know, governed way. And um, it was it was shot down, although it had clear bipartisan support. And and the reason it was shot down was because of this uh, argument that, you know, government subsidized daycare was un-American there. It was unnatural to uh, encourage or support um, the the 
the, the um, a family that didn't want to have the mother home with with her children, and and by playing into that sort of quintessential American mid century mid twentieth century vision, and this this governmental um, act was was shot down for good, and the problem was that businesses didn't pick up the slack at that time. So the idea, you know, the ideal is, okay, well, if the government isn't going to provide nationalized child care, let's have businesses then take care of their families that are the the families of their workers uh, to allow for, you know, the the influx of women at that time in the 70s to be able to join the workforce successfully. Well, women did join the workforce, but they were shoehorned into a male competitive model that essentially demanded that they leave their families and children behind and, you know, sort of show up for FaceTime in the office. And and businesses did not respond by then offering those women with the kinds of policies that they needed to really make that work for them. They didn't respond with paid maternity leave. Um, they didn't respond with with more flexible work hours at that time until technology kind of demanded it and made it possible. Uh, they didn't respond with with uh, with paternal leave, paternity leave, and so so women have were left for decades, you know, without the governmental support and without the business support for the policies that really are needed in order to allow women to support their families in a in a in a healthy and nurturing way. And so when this argument comes up again around equal pay, you know, I, I, I sympathize with this idea that, you know, let's not have the government step in. Let's not mandate um, that, that, that businesses, you know, must follow certain federal regulations. I, I sympathize with that. But at the same time, history has shown us that the businesses will not step up. If, it costs, if, it, if it's perceived to cost them money, they will not do it. And I say perceived because, of course, now we have a lot of research that's showing that policies that are good for women and allow companies to recruit and retain women and diversify their decision-making bodies really leads to very concrete additional profitability. But the perception is if we spend money up front on childcare or on you know, paying our women more or on paying them for maternity leave, those, those, those are perceived to be um, losses. Uh, and I just don't have confidence that our businesses are going to step up and, and do the right thing unless there is an external motivation or force uh, making, making them do so. A community that struggles with diversity, and when I talk to you, you use the phrase gender optimization. Uh, a community that struggles that with maybe as much as any community is the tech community. Yeah. You know, and this is Silicon Slopes, you know, radio show. How do we solve this problem for Utah's tech community? And it's not like that it's unique to Utah. Every tech community across the world and across the country is struggling with diversity, and how do we solve this? But Utah specifically, because I love your idea of Utah needs to be a leader on these issues. What should Utah be doing? That's a great question. Um, I don't have the silver bullet, but I certainly have a lot of thoughts about it. As you said, the tech community in general struggles with this. You know, this is um, the day after. I don't 
I don't know if your listeners are going to be aware of this, but the this, this sort of whistleblower from Uber um, wrote an article about a very, very strange year she had of, of overt sexual harassment as an, as an engineer at, at Uber. Uh, this this is you know rampant uh, in Silicon Valley and and in co- in companies across the the country. So, but but as it you know as we've been talking about, Utah has some unique challenges and it has some unique benefits and unique advantages. I have talked about my philosophy of gender optimization. It's a term that I've come up with to embrace this idea that both men and women today, now in the 21st century, need to be involved in the revolution of the workplace. This is no longer a woman's issue. It's never actually been a woman's issue. It's been an issue of families. And the really exciting and encouraging thing is that if you read the literature today about uh, the the, the workplace revolution, and by that I mean how the workplace itself or how the concept of working is changing because of technology and because of the rise of millennials who are staying in jobs an average of nine months at a time, who are demanding uh, time for self-care as well as care for families, who are when it's I'm also referring to the re- revolution that is uh, is allowing people to take care of their boomer parents who are aging. We have 26% of the population that are baby boomers and are going to be retiring in the next couple of years. They're, they're a significant force in this workplace revolution because workers, uh, prime age workers, are needing to take time out to care for those, those aging parents. All of these factors are contributing to a workplace revolution that is being written about and being um, really thought of very innovatively in lots of different spheres and one of the most exciting things, I think, from our point of view as Utahns to come out of the literature and to come out of these discussions is that, again, this isn't a women's issue. This is an issue of families. This is an issue of caring for both our men and our women and allowing us as communities to raise the next generation of workers and to be um, the kind of, of nurturers and, and as well as competitors in the workplace that we want to be. Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's the the uh, head of the New America Foundation and a Princeton professor, wrote a book called Unfinished Business. And she talked about caring and competing being the two human drives that are really at play in this discussion. Can we both care for those around us, care for our loved ones, care for ourselves, and can we compete? And can we fulfill that drive to contribute? Um, and And that's the workplace revolution that I think Utah is so uniquely positioned to play a part in. Yes, the tech community specifically has issues around gender diversity, and um, I'm, you know, I can certainly review some of those those universal challenges uh, that all tech communities are struggling with. One, of course, is uh, just recruiting women. There's the the perception again, not. Maybe statistically, it, it it's not necessarily um, the reality, but there's the perception that there's a pri- pipeline problem, that we don't have enough qualified women uh, that that are coming out of school. Certainly, we have fewer female graduates in STEM majors, but um, there are you know considerably talented women that are coming into the space, uh, which then leads to the problem of re- retention. Um, and this is a this is I think you know, an, an area which all tech companies are struggling uh, with women being 
tokens in their teams, for instance. It's a lot of pressure for a single woman to come into an engineering team, for example, um, and be part of that 10% of the team that's female. Um, the, the pressures of tokenism, the pressures of having to stand up and say, you know, this isn't going to work for me because I'm pregnant, or this isn't going to work for me because I have to go to a child's school play. Um, the, the repercussions of perfor- through performance reviews, through, um, you know, the, just the, the kind of um, the kind of hits that your career can take when you're in such a male-dominated culture as engineering and you're standing up as that token female. That's a lot of pressure for women. And not all women are interested in doing that. They're not all interested in being that woman um, who's, who's standing up for those changes. Uh, and so I think those, pro- you know, we have those same problems here in Utah. I think uh, another challenge that we have uniquely here in Utah is recruiting women from out of state. You know, I've talked to companies here in the state who say, you know, we're trying to get women to come to Utah from out of state, but, but you know, they're just not keen to come here or they have a trailing spouse who doesn't know if he's going to be able to work here. Uh, or there's just, you know, the perceptions of Utah in the, in the media and the press that they've heard. Um, specifically, I know uh, some of the, the business schools here have trouble getting women to even come to business school here because they know that it's likely that they're going to stay after business school and find a job here, and they're not sure that they want to settle in Utah. So, you know, I think re- recruiting women from out of state is something that that I would love to see our tech companies really put a concerted effort behind. And I, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking about what that program might be or how we can do that. But I think it's a lot about education. It's a lot about um, actively seeking out individuals, uh, individual courting of, of women who, who these companies want to have on their teams. But of course, it's also cleaning up our own homes, right? And making sure that our companies are hospitable places for them to come, making sure that once they get here, they aren't going to find you know the horror story they imagined to actually be true. And uh, so keeping our, our own house in order is part of that as well. I also think that the tech communities here, uh, back to my, my earlier theme, uh, could really be pioneers in this area of introducing uh, older women to coding, which of course is a you know, highly um, flexible and, and lucrative job. Uh, you know, the, the women may not be interested in going into you know, larger management roles. But I think, you know, anybody who's seen Hidden Figures recently is apt to wonder what happened with the, the women coders. You know, it seems like even for women who are looking for flexible part-time jobs or it's such a great skill. Um, but, but, you know, I don't know that the, again, the narrative exists, the examples exist. I'm not sure that the um, outlets for education exist for these women to develop the skills they need to be coders. Um, so, so that would be another thing that I would love to see the Utah tech community work on. You're listening to the Deseret News Silicon Slopes Hour on KSL News Radio. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Seneca Council founder Nylan McBain. Welcome back to the Deseret News Silicon Slopes Hour on KSL News Radio. My name is Clint Betts. We're speaking with Seneca Council founder Nylan McBain about how to solve the diversity problem currently facing Utah's tech community. We pick up our conversation with a discussion on what Nylan hopes to accomplish over the next few years. 
I think we can talk about this. Nyland, you and I have had a, a number of conversations, and we're creating a committee inside of Silicon Slopes that you're going to chair yes. around gender optimization in Utah's tech community. Can you, you know, I, I mean, we're still kind of developing what that committee is going to focus on and, and things like that, and, and you're kind of taking the lead on that. But what do you hope to accomplish within the next year or two years inside of this committee? And what would you hope that the Silicon Slopes community and the Utah Tech community would do to kind of rally around these efforts? Well, yeah, you're going to be catching some of my my initial thoughts here um, just from the past week or so. But over the next year, I, I'm really excited about this committee. I think, you know, obviously... You, Clint, and, and Silicon Slopes have put together a really great group of advocates, and I'm excited to tap into them and to discover what their challenges are in their own uh, workplaces and in their own with the uh, and, and really align with their own goals for their workforces. But you know, I'd love f- for us to start with uh, with a with a a comprehensive review of what it looks like to be a working woman in Utah today and what it looks like uh, in our tech companies here in Utah um, to be to be a woman today. You know, UVU, uh, you mentioned earlier, and Susan Madsen and her team there are doing wonderful work looking at uh, the statistics of, of women in Utah, and, and they often touch on our labor force. But I would really love to be create a report that, that allows Utah companies to be very transparent about what's going on with the gender diversity in their workforces. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, we're going to, we're going to uncover some new challenges that I haven't thought of that you haven't thought of that we haven't talked about today. Um, We're also going to encounter some really wonderful things that are happening, innovative policies, places that are um, offering, um, Really unusual solutions. For instance, I know that um, that Degreed offers an innovative maternity leave policy, which is that uh, the the mother can take off as much time as she wants, but she needs to commit to returning for twice as long as she took off. I haven't encountered another company that that does that specific um, policy, so I think that's really intriguing, and I'd love to dig into that through a comprehensive report and and share that report with with other, you know, with the leaders here in Utah so that we can really, first of all, put to bed this idea that women are choosing to work and that they don't need to be in the workforce and that they're not really adding anything. They are, you know, they're they're really the 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 future of our economy. And other states have figured that out. They figured out that our that the this specific state economy is going to grow because of increased female participation in the workforce, and in fact, there's a um, there's a uh, there's a statistic that that shows that our our state GDP could actually increase by 13 percent by 2020 if we were to close the wage gap, the gender gap today. So there's real numbers behind this, and I and I and I'd love to put together a comprehensive report that's sort of the the state of the of the state today, uh, and then help educate our companies as to how they can. Um, continue to grow and how their bottom line will grow by closing some of these gaps. So that's that's one major project. I'd love to also really be able to work hand-in-hand with some of our executives and some of our people operations leaders to help them understand that there are real things that we can do today, now, 
to recruit and retain women and to make the lives of both mothers and fathers um, more manageable for our, our workers here in Utah. For instance, the the rise of the word ninja and and the and the word rock star in job descriptions has gone up 450% in the past 5 years. And there are not a lot of women who are going to respond to the word ninja in a job in a job posting and say, "Yes, that is me." So there's there's a lot of research that's gone into little things like this to show that for instance, women do not respond to job postings that require ninja skills and we want a rock star. Women don't respond to those. That's a really pretty straightforward fix. It just requires awareness on the part of people writing job listings and on, on the human resources and people operations teams. And I'd love to be able to provide workshops and trainings for executives and for um, people in HR so that we can make some of those easy fixes more readily embraced here in Utah. So I, there's going to be a lot more. To, there's going to be a lot more to that to that answer, hopefully, um, as we get going. But that's kind of where my mind is for starters. I love it. Yeah, and we're and we're and we're still figuring out. And I think uh, you know we'll have a number of conversations, bring a lot of people to the table to kind of help us solve you know some of these issues around this. Lastly, why is this important to you, Nyland? Tell us about you. Why Utah is important to you, and why uh, focusing particularly on gender optimization is important. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I need to start with the fact that I was raised in New York City. I am an only child. I had two wonderful doting parents, but my parents were divorced. Um, they were separated by the, from the time I was 12. So my mom had a very successful career as an, as an opera singer. And um, I always really loved the fact that um, she had this thing that was so unique to her. I also went to a private girls' school, an all-girls school um, in on the upper west, uh, on the upper east side of New York City, and um, I there was receiving lots of encouragement and lots of um, uh, education specifically into women's history, and so that's always been a passion of mine, partly because of that educational experience. And I myself have worked um, ever. Ever since I got out of college, I've, I've paused a couple times to have my children, and I've been really grateful for flexible work environments that have allowed me to be home when my kids get home from school or to work remotely. Uh, and, and I've also had really, really bad experiences where I've been on part-time schedules and have just been completely sidelined and um, completely left out of things and um, discriminated against because I've had... Um, you know, a sort of special schedule. So I've seen, I've seen all of that. I've, I've, I started my career in Silicon Valley. I had really wonderful experiences there. And um, as we've gone back and forth across the country, uh, raising our children, we've had lots of different kinds of work experiences. And we've settled here in Utah about eight years ago. I absolutely love it here. I have three daughters. And I want to make sure that they know that they can have a both- and model in their lives rather than an either or model. And the way what I mean by that is that um, I don't want them to be raised with the sense that they can either have a big career or they can have a family. Um, it just doesn't have to be that way anymore. And I want them to think of them, themselves rather as having both something that's unique to them that really taps into their skills that they feel passionate about that they can feel 
um, rewards themselves personally as well as their family. And they can also thrive at nurturing their families and being good wives and mothers and have husbands that are really focused on being good husbands and fathers jointly. And I feel like that's that's how I've gotten to where I am today. I've lived through a really interesting transitional period. You know, when I was young, my dad was a lawyer on Wall Street. And when we went to his office, you know, it was so formal and you had to dress up and there was a secretary outside of every office. And the office, you know, you got tens of thousands of dollars in decorating budget to do your office in marble and wood. And, and growing up in 1980s New York City, you know, I really saw the old boys club at work. I went to Yale for college. Yale did nothing to prepare me for the new economy. It did everything to prepare me for that old boys club. And, um, and when I got actually out into the workforce, I, find, I kind of felt betrayed. I felt like, wow, nobody prepared me for the dot-com revolution. Nobody prepared me to work in Silicon Valley in the 2000s. Um, it's so much more fluid. I'm, I need to be my own. I need to be an entrepreneur of my own career here. I need to. I need to craft myself. I can't just park myself at a company for the next thirty years. You know, I have to really be on my toes here. Figure out what I'm good at. Sell myself. Market myself. You know, switch jobs when needed. And um, that's what our children have in store for them, both boys and girls. This idea of parking yourself at a company and winning the bread for your family outside the home is just too antiquated to be holding on to anymore. And for my daughters and for the daughters of, of, of Utahns generally, I'm really excited for them to be able to go into a, a working community that really allows them to jointly care and compete, back to the words of, of Anne-Marie Slaughter. How optimistic are you in Utah's ability to change and solve <laughs> this problem? Well, because when you think about it, I, I think about this a lot, and I've talked about this with you know a number of our executive board members, and we actually had this conversation on a panel actually in front of Governor Herber um, a while back, and this idea that um, the political leaders, at least, how uh, how much do they actually want diversity in this state? How much do they actually want to? you know, bring, you know, people of different backgrounds and different stripes to this state. And because, you know, you start doing that and then all of a sudden the political uh, culture and environment changes, right? Absolutely. And there, there are some kind of political downsides for, mm-hmm. you know, leaders, you know, at the legislature and, you know, in the government level to bring in more kind of diverse opinions and diverse views and that type You know what I mean? Oh, It's yeah. not even just like, uh, diversity or gender optimization things like uh, you know diversity of thought and opinion. How optimistic are you in our ability to or motivation as a state to actually solve this problem? I don't think the question is so much how many of our political leaders would actively say that they want to bring diversity and specifically gender diversity to our state or to our workplaces. Um, I am, I'm not counting on that being, you know, a, a hugely popular sentiment. I think what you can count on, though, is that our leaders are very attracted by and excited by the notion that Utah is actually taking a lead in business 
and in the success of our businesses and in our economic growth and in the publicity that we are getting for Silicon Slopes companies and for all of the other companies here that are growing and taking the lead in, in, in national conversations. That is very alluring um, to the state government, I would think, to our both our political and our business leaders. And they want to keep it that way. We've, they, we're very proud of what's going on right now with, with our media attention and with the, the scope and speed of our growth. And I, I'm, what I'm counting on is the fact that that growth is only going to be sustainable and possible in the future if we figure this out to some degree. Because this is a major conversation on the coasts. It's a major conversation in Silicon Valley and in and across the East Coast. And the acknowledgement there is that in order to compete internationally and nationally in the future, companies are going to have to figure this out. They're going to have to figure out how to tap into this um, potential workforce and how to better use the workers they already have, especially with millennials coming up. As I mentioned, millennials are very particular and demanding about um, these, you know, this this optimization of the workplace. And if Utah wants to continue on this trajectory of, you know, being praised for our own business and economic growth, I I have to believe that at some point the rubber is going to hit the road. And even if people don't necessarily actively want this as a as a moral right i think that that the allure of higher profitability better decision making um more innovation in decision making and product development is going to drive us all to the realization that when you know 80% of purchasing decisions here in the united states are made by women to have an all-male workforce making decisions on product development and how to market those products, it's just not sustainable. And at some point, I think the business case is going to um, is going to take is going to come to the fore, even if, as a moral case and as a cultural case, there is still reticence. So I'm, well, no, you know, I, I tend to be an optimistic no, yeah. person, but that's why I do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's but your point is well taken. You. We're, we're so excited to work with you. We're excited to, about uh, about this new committee around gender, gender optimization that you're chairing uh, with Silicon Slope. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure, as we begin to roll things out. Um, how can people learn more about you and kind of things that you're working on? Give, your, give yourself a plug. Send them to a website or something. Seneca Council. Dot com. And Seneca Council is the name of my company. We provide uh, consulting services for companies that are interested in implementing gender optimization. We also do private benchmarking. So we have developed a system that goes in and looks at policies, practices, and behaviors in the workplace and evaluates them and helps companies do even better. We also, ha- we also have a public certification. So for companies that are doing really well based on our tool, we will offer them a public certification that they can put on their websites and in their offices with pride to say that they are uh, a gender optimized or working towards gender optimization, at least in their workplace. 
So that's what I do. I'm here to serve Utah and beyond, and I'm really excited to be working with uh, the companies here in our state. Well, Nyland, thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. I want to thank Seneca Council founder Nylon McBain for coming on today's show. Please subscribe to the Deseret News Silicon Slopes Hour on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or all three. And if you could please be so kind, give us a positive review and rating. Today's show was brought to you by Start Studio. Startups and entrepreneurs looking to build great products and get off to a great start should visit startstudio.com. Signing off for now, my name is Clint Betts, and this has been another episode of the Deseret News Silicon Slopes Hour.